You are now doing less with John, Jeff, and a special guest this time. Uh, you guys are calling us dumb and leaving mean comments, so we decided to bring a third person on so that me and John could gang up on him and make ourselves look good. Why don't you introduce yourself? <laughs> My name is Rogo. Live in <laughs> Chicago. Some people call me Dopey. Dopey. You may have already inferred that from the sound of my voice, but uh, don't let that fool you. I'm a very excitable man, and uh, <laughs> I think I have some thoughts that I'd like to bring to the podcast. Big fan of Jeff and John. They, they, they do great work on this podcast. Ah, thank you. That's nice of you to say. Thanks, Rago. That's awesome. Nice intro also. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well done. Quality introduction. So first things first, you guys have been hearing a lot from Jeff and I on this podcast. Uh, let's just hear from Rogo. So tell us about your, well, you, you already told us about yourself. Tell us how you're doing in this, uh, this calamity. How, are you uh, staying sane, sa staying safe? Yeah. Uh, what's, your, what's, how, what's your life been impacted? How has it been impacted? Yeah, I mean... Uh, in Chicago, they closed all the restaurants, all the all the bars, all the public places for the most part. So, uh, pretty much locked down in my house and uh, working from home. Yeah, working from home. A little boring, a little stir crazy, but you know this this yeah. is life. This is for for the greater good, as I'm sure <laughs> a lot of people uh, would agree with to help to flatten the curve. Uh, we could all do our part, but uh, yeah, that, that's life at the moment. What's on your What's hand, your take on uh, working from home? How much do you think that has affected your productivity? I think, similar to what we would like to do, my productivity has flattened. <laughs> 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 so, I work lo longer hours at a lower productivity, which. I don't mm. think is uh, is great, especially it's it's easy to keep working at home. Like, you know, the, the hours just blend together. Yeah, I found that <laughs> I get nothing done when I'm at home. But fortunately, my office is just it's a family business, so it's like two people or three people sometimes. So, you know, it's not a big deal. So I just go to the office anyway. Which is nice, because I wouldn't get anything done if I didn't. <laughs> yeah, I like working from home. I um, I think my productivity is probably uh, similar to what I do in the office. Um, but I had for the first time this week, I started to feel actually a little bit anxious in my room. Um, so it was nice. I took a walk outside, walked over to the park. There's like a nice lake. Um, so that was actually a, really worth it because I was like needed to get outside and just like, <laughs> just kind of like stretch my legs, yeah. get away from the computer. Yeah. I like to take naps. So when you're in the <laughs> office, it's, it's hard to take naps, but when you're home, it's, uh, <laughs> that's true. It comes easy. <laughs> uh, sorry. I just got out of a meeting. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, Mr. Call. <laughs> so, uh, 
let's let's get into the meat of things, uh, Rogo. Uh, what do you see? What do you see in these markets? Are you uh, are you active? Are you have you been um, you know picking up deals or are you extremely bearish? You running for the hills? What's what's kind of your impression of these markets right now? Yeah. So in my personal portfolio, um, I've been a long term bull for three years. I remain to be so. I think long term the markets remain attractive, which I know uh, is a little different from you guys. But uh, <laughs> <Probably>. <laughs> they, uh, I mean, my portfolio has certainly taken a hit the last two months. It's at all time highs in early January or late January, like everyone else. And mm-hmm. then, uh, I mean, I, I was down up to 40 to 50% uh, recently before the, the stimulus got announced and the recent rebound. Uh, yeah, what so, do you think is driving that rebound? Do you think it is that stimulus announcement, like the two trillion, yeah, or I mean, do you think? The, and do you think it's, you know, a sign that we're close to the bottom, or do you think it's none of that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's going to be a flat bottom for a month or two. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think it, it'll go much lower than the lows we saw a week ago, but. Uh, it might stay flat. I don't, I don't think it's going to be uh, a significant rise. And by significant rise, uh, is twenty percent <laughs> significant? <laughs> I guess not in these markets. Everything's so volatile. Yeah, that, that means nothing. It'll, it could go back to right, right where it was a week ago. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's the crazy thing. Like last year, I remember like a two percent move was like a was like a big move for a day, and now it's like. That, that yeah. doesn't. I don't even pay attention if it doesn't move five percent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a different time. Yeah, but I think a, a lot of the actions that have been taken by uh, so, some of the states and the governors for social distancing that that should reduce the acceleration in the number of cases. I mean, the number of cases is on a on a two week lag, so I, I think there is good news ahead. It's just. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, so we've stated before on this podcast that our opinion is the coronavirus is actually not really the heart of the issue here and that we believe there's actually a much more a much larger debt crisis looming over us and that the coronavirus essentially just is making a lot of that debt go bad. What's what's your take on that? Yeah, I think no doubt you guys are hitting on the head that uh a lot of the problem is the the corporate debt bubble, you know, mm-hmm. having having lower interest rates. I mean, pe- co- companies are taking out debt, and any sort of uh, volume or growth declines, they're just not prepared for it. So it, it right. is the du- double whammy. Like you do have, you wouldn't have these significant problems if there wasn't uh, if there wasn't too much corporate debt or too easy access to capital. Uh, but I mean, you, you do have the other side that you see significant demand decreases. Uh, we wouldn't be in this problem without uh, the coronavirus taking hold. Or it might have been delayed to another crisis. Yeah. So I have a question, um, and it's kind of a bit of a clarification on something you said earlier. You said markets remain attractive, and feel free to be as specific as you like. Um, obviously this is an investment advice. We're just 
bullshitting, talking or, you know, just chatting. But uh, when you say markets continue to look attractive, I mean, to me, obviously. He means like Jessica Alba. Like Jeff said. <laughs> to, to me, obviously. Uh, <laughs> How about Danny DeVito? <laughs> Pick your poison. Um, the market before any kind of shakeup wasn't very attractive to me, and I'm just talking about broad market. So, like an in, you know, S and P index, broad index, uh, is overweight in my opinion. So, is that what you mean by markets in general? Just the the broad market, or are you looking at individual sectors that you invest in that look that looked attractive and probably more so now at a discount? Yeah, I, I think the individual sectors. I mean, um, personally, I, I like choosing what I own instead of uh, indexing. Indexing. So at an index level, I mean, I, I don't see why the economy can't continue to grow at two, three percent a year, barring any sort of crisis. I, I do think you guys have uh, harped on the the amount of money in the economy, or the amount of federal uh, Federal Reserve stimulus, and I'm certainly on board with that. I, I just am unwilling to predict when that bubble will burst. And I don't think right. adding another 10% to your federal debt is going to help matters. That'll probably accelerate that bubble bursting, but it's, it's just so hard to predict, you know, when that bottom will take place because that could be our next crisis. Right. Um, and certainly some of the most recent numbers I think coming out are pretty alarming. Like the um, initial jobless claims, I don't know, I, that was a big headline lately, which was like the three million over 3 million weekly jobless claims, where the, the previous high before that was like 600,000. And then the, the Federal Reserve balance sheet hitting over 5 trillion, like these are, I guess, metrics that no one has ever seen before. So it's kind of like we're in a period of history that's, you know, it's not like there's anyone we can necessarily turn to, like who has experience with this sort of stuff. Unprecedented. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the charts, like we call it the roaring 20s, but uh, mm -hmm. the, the, the broad indices did have like a two a two-year decline after the war, but it was also coupled, uh, World War One coupled with the, the epidemic of the Spanish flu. So, mm -hmm. I, I mean, it's over 100 years ago, but uh, there is some evidence to say we, we can come out of this. And, I mean, three million jobs is nothing to sneeze at, but given what's going on in the world, it's also nothing to be surprised at either. Right. And I, in my opinion, honestly, I would, I am inclined to agree as bearish as John and I are like, this is, we're living in an age where information is the most accessible and transferable that it's ever been. So in my opinion, I, I see no reason why we can't achieve economic growth of like 10% a year, honestly. But I, I think what's happening is there's a lot of kind of like the government is just such a big burden on our economy that it's preventing this sort of stuff. And, and until we get that 
out of the way, I feel like that's going to hold us back. And, and my impression is we're, we're actually going in the wrong direction here. And maybe if it blows up enough, you know, people may return back away from this kind of stuff. But I don't know. It doesn't that doesn't really seem like what's happening to me. I think it's absolutely the right direction at the moment. But there's no reason the last four or five years we we couldn't have tightened up our monetary policy to reduce our uh, the Federal Reserve balance sheet uh, during good times so we had ammo during the bad times. Uh, Same with the federal debt. Uh, I think those are tools that we do need to use in bad times. Like this is an appropriate time, but to not have responsibility, run a huge deficit during good times is, I I don't understand it. And I don't think he does either. either. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, my opinion is that (laughs) I, I don't even necessarily think stimulus of any kind is proper, even in bad times. And my reasoning for that is just that I think wealth transfers have lots of uh, um, side effects and bad side effects, right? And I think that's all stimulus is, is a wealth transfer. And essentially, I guess the, the notion is, or the principle of it at its heart is you're taking money out of hands that are doing nothing with it and trying to put it into hands of people that are going to you know, start businesses or expand their businesses or whatever. And that's I that I believe is the philosophy. Um, but I, I just sort of disagree with that premise in that, you know, it's okay to do a wealth transfer, uh, you know, for the sake of the greater good. Um, but I can definitely see the argument there. But I just sort of generally disagree. But I mean, even in even if you are on the side of having wealth transfers, like you said, it's we're in no position to do so anymore because it's it's basically like we were we we never had a surplus. We never you know, we were never taking advantage of the good times to, you know, do what we wanted to do in the bad times under that philosophy. So it's like I I'm worried this is kind of heading towards the end game here because we're basically just exhausting all our resources to, you know, fulfill this strategy anyway. So, so Jeff, you would, you would argue even during bad times, we shouldn't necessarily bail bail out the economy with either fiscal uh, government policy or the federal reserve balance sheet. Yeah. And, uh, the reason I believe that is, um, I think at the end of the day, any one of those policies, they're they're all wealth transfers. Whether it's fiscal policy, Federal Reserve, they're they're all just different forms of wealth transfer. So, for example, let's say we gave everyone a thousand dollars. That's one form of stimulus. Obviously, we're not going to take a thousand dollars out of everyone's pocket and give it back to them. That that would be nonsense. And if we took out loans to do it. And then had everyone pay for them equally. That's just kind of that's a wealth transfer from everyone's future, essentially. So you're basically forcing people to spend now instead of later. So you know, to the people that kind of don't want to 
that don't want to spend now, they want to save. It's it's kind of unfair to them. And then, you know, the alternative is you could have wealthier people pay for the stimulus now, right? So you don't tax everyone equally. And then that's just sort of a wealth transfer from wealthier people. And then I think that causes inflation, right? Because generally, you know, people with less wealth aren't going to invest it. They're just going to spend it. Um, and then so, you know, there's a lot of variants of fiscal. And then when you get into the monetary policy, uh, I just see this as a wealth transfer from like if you lower interest rates, that's basically a wealth transfer from savers to um, debtors because you're essentially making it cheaper to borrow and giving them a pathway to forego the people who have saved where they would have had to go to them in the first place. Um, or if you're not lowering interest rates, you're just creating money. Again, that's just a wealth transfer from like essentially dollar holders to non-dollars. So at the end of the day, all the tools the government has are just wealth transfers. Um, and I, I can see the argument for, you know, if, if there really is truly mass hysteria and, and like greater minds get together and they, and they can see through it and say, no, this is certainly just hysteria. We should take the money out of the people who are being hysterical and put it into people's hands who are being reasonable. I can see the argument, but it's, I, I still think that's a dangerous path. And I, and the re, and I think we're seeing evidence of that today in the sense that we're just, we're doing everything all at the same time because we're, you know, we don't have, you know, people with nuance in charge. We, you know, in my opinion, like we just kind of have people who are, political they're just politicians they, they're not interested in actually the greater good or whatever it may be they're just kind of doing it for safe face or whatever it may be yeah i and just to kind of reiterate i think that's a lot of good points um the thing i'd reiterate is how important how much it should be stressed that the central bank is politically completely independent from any uh you know political interference it's it's got to be a separate entity and it's got to be in a vacuum because uh, i think what what we see today is just the uh <clears throat> manifestation of of that just going completely backwards like i think that the past 20 years maybe more uh you wouldn't see central bank policy uh that you did see if not for political expedience i think i think it's the sole reason that you know you can't let the market go down because you know what it, what are people going to think of? and when i say political expedience it's almost even the central banker himself i don't know whether it's um himself or herself uh shout out to janet yellen we'll never see another crisis in our lifetimes um <laughs> but uh <laughs> i think that um i think that if it were I don't know if they're like trying to set themselves up for after they leave the leave the office of the reserve chairman. Um, if they're trying to get a nice sweet golden parachute somewhere with a you know you know a nice Citibank advisor position or whatever, uh, I don't know what their motivation is, but I think they're clearly not acting uh, for the monetary future of the country. I think it's a, a bastardization of that to the point where it's. They're just trying to get the stock market to go up. That was our conclusion on the last podcast. Uh, it's almost it's almost impossible to to prove wrong the fact that these central bankers are just 
they're just trying to goose the stock market, which is like, uh, so to me, that's just not the point of the position. And if that's going to be the case, it can't, it, that position can't exist. Like you got to change that somehow. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, we talk about flattening the curve from a healthcare perspective, but, uh, a lot of this fiscal and government policy helps to flatten the growth curve of, uh, of GDP. Uh, right. You know, ma- ma- uh, making bad times better and good times uh, a little worse, or like yeah. two, two, three. It seems like they've kind of five. neglected that part, though, right? Like the the saving up during the good times, like taking away from the good times. It feels to me like they've neglected that that half of the the like. E- if you're trying to flatten, I guess, the cycle, you have to do both, right? And it, it seems like they've neglected that half. What do you think? Yeah, no doubt. I mean, you, uh, Arch hit it right on the head. The, the Federal Reserve is totally politicized. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, they, they tried to peel back the balance sheet. I think they put, peeled it back maybe $600 billion. You guys could fact check me later. Yeah, it, it was something it was like, like that. Four, four part one to yeah. three and a half. Uh, and after uh, a few months, the market crashed. Yeah, the market crashed. Everyone freaked out. And if I was the Federal Reserve Chairman, I'd be, oh, so what? Like, those are asset <laughs> prices. Right. <laughs> you heard it here, folks. <laughs> Paul Rogowski <laughs> is coming up for a Fed chair. <laughs> yeah. No, but no, that's a good point. Give me a PhD in 30 years of economics. <laughs> experience later but yeah yeah, yeah, i mean and then trump's complaining about oh we got to compete on interest rates with europe and japan no you don't just just do the right thing (laughs) yeah that's right and your your country's best interest in the long term we know what they're doing is other countries are doing Don't, don't don't look over your shoulder i mean just focus on what you can do and what's best for your country it's also bizarre. No country ever failed from too strong of a currency. <laughs> I just wanted to say that. Right. It's, <laughs> it's also bizarre for him to say, you know, look at the central banks in Europe and Japan. Like they're going to out compete. Like they're taking, they're being more competitive on interest rates because it's like, do we really think those countries are more like innovative than ours? Like, is that, like, or Europe's not a country, but like, you know what I mean? Like the America is still. By far, one of the uh, hotspots of innovation in the world. So it's to try to like follow their lead on monetary policy when Japan's been stagnated for like twenty years. It just doesn't make any sense. Um, I think earlier you said you wanted to talk about oil, and I I believe you're doing some consulting work in the petroleum industry. Is that right? Uh, slightly, like in the just a little. Wait, I'm sorry. Can I just? I'm sorry, can I just put, before we get to that, I do want to get to that, we'll get to that right after that, but I think a better segue, if you don't mind, um, is if we just touch on inflation versus deflation, uh, Rogo, do you have any kind of uh, prediction or, um, I, I see a lot of this going back and forth, like the global demand for dollars is going to cause deflation and the easy monetary policy of the Fed is going to cause inflation, do you have any kind of horse in that race? I haven't really thought about it. Uh, I'm sure you guys have talked about this on previous podcasts, but 
Just catch me up to speed on what your perspective is. Uh, so, um, I'll say that I, I do see a global demand for dollars. I mean, it's the reserve currency of the world. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, margin calls, gl- like global margin calls to meet uh, a lot of dollar-denominated debt, which is out there, um, as well as just functional use of dollars is like for trade and for, uh, yeah, for f- foreign exchange. Um, dollars are always important. So I think that's attributable to the rise in the dollar we've seen in the last couple of weeks. Um, but I think that the Fed is just going to print so much it doesn't matter. I think they're just going to print until there's no more demand, at which point it's gonna, that's got to be inflationary. Right. Like my opinion is that essentially there's a lot of debt that's going to go bust, um, and that would be pretty highly deflationary. Uh, as that debt's defaulting, uh, but like John said, I just I think the the Fed is gonna make sure no one has to default. I think they're gonna bail everyone out. Um, and so yeah. if they bail everyone out, I, mean, I just they, they pumped so much money into the economy. Yeah, <laughs> they just pumped so much money into the economy in the last ten years, and inflation hasn't exceeded what two three percent. Right. I, I still I still don't agree with it. Like the the cause should have or that factor should ha- cause the effect that we would expect of inflation. So it'll be interesting right. to see. I, I, I think they will react uh when we do see inflation due to their measures. And yeah. as you guys pointed out, that there should be inflation. So uh It'll be interesting to see if, if, if they, they roll back all this quantitative easing when we do see yeah, the effect and it's coming. Rogo, I'm, cu- I'm curious to hear your take on this. So I, I've i actually started to think my, my new sort of, I don't know, hypothesis. I don't know what to call it. Um, but I, I'm starting to believe that the CPI is actually sort of a red herring um, and that everyone has been much too focused on the CPI to evaluate our monetary policy, right? So as long as the CPI is not uh, deflationary or it's not too inflationary, everyone says, okay, monetary policy is fine. Uh, but I, 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 the reason I kind of went down this road is how could they have possibly have created so much money with zero adverse side effects, right? That didn't make sense to me. So. I, what I'm starting to think is actually maybe the CPI is not not the main metric we need to be considering here. And maybe, in, in fact, it's not as important as we think it is. And there are still negative side effects of this money, monetary creation that won't show up in the CPI. And sort of what, I, what I'm thinking now is, okay, so the Fed essentially created $4 trillion out of thin air and used that to buy... Uh, you know, mostly treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. And so essentially that was just a wealth tra- wealth transfer again from dollar holders to those asset holders. And so, you know, essentially under people's noses, we had one of the most massive taxes that they've ever had, right? Because it again, like for those asset holders to get that, value it had to come from somewhere 
And where it came from is just equally across everyone who holds dollars. And so I, I think this is just really hard to measure is how much wealth has been transferred because it's kind of like an opportunity cost thing. It's like, like you can't say, oh, they would have had this much without this action, right? Because then you'd have to be able to measure that, right? So it's, in my opinion, it's actually like something very difficult to measure. But essentially what they've done is directed a bunch of wealth away from dollar holders and put it in the hands of uh, everyone who who is holding treasuries and um, uh, mortgage-backed securities by essentially putting a floor in their value. What do you think of that? Yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking like the only thing, just tangibly speaking, uh, if you go to a grocery store Mm -hmm. and... We know if you pump money into the economy, we, we, we should see inflation. Mm-hmm. But if the if the suppliers, if the retailers, they're more efficient, they're more productive at putting your Reese's uh, snack onto the shelves, <laughs> there's been productivity growth. So uh, th- there's a chance that that uh, helps to combat inflation offset the deflation that would right the deflation that would have happened is offset by the inflation like tangibly like when you guys go out to shop like do you see are, are your clothes more expensive than they were eight nine years ago are you are you is your food uh, significantly it's hard to more say expensive? i i i would say definitely well i don't know it's hard to say because like i haven't been spending money on rent for very long i'm not that old you know um <laughs> yeah, and so there's a lot of variance and a lot of variables right overall like it's nothing you want to expect uh, right it doesn't feel like so so things are insanely more expensive minimal inflation but what i'm expecting is obviously well, yeah right now if you're trying to buy stocks eight years ago and trying to buy stocks uh, <laughs> last year <laughs> well, those, are right, those prices went up <laughs> Right. So I think that's kind of what Jeff is trying to say. Like there's a, the, the CPI, yeah, you know, maybe it's a little bit, it, the indication is that uh, the grocery store the um, hasn't seen a massive inflation. Um, but I think when you're looking at prices, it's, I, that's, I, I, I'd agree with Jeff, like a CPI has got to be imperfect because it doesn't even take into account like it doesn't they, the, the number they use the core number doesn't even take into account energy which is like well <laughs> i don't think it i think even if the cpi expenses. was perfect like let's say it was a perfect measurement i think it may not necessarily uh measure what it is i'm talking about in terms of this wealth transfer effect uh and that's why i think it can go unnoticed but i think there is it is not completely unnoticed i think a lot of the reasons why Trump won is this uh, this wealth transfer effect. I think people are noticing it um, just more subconsciously, not in a measurable way. It's just they feel like their standard mm-hmm. of living is just not rising like it should be. Um, and I think this is a component of that. Archibald, uh, I just wanted to come back to your earlier question about uh, what sectors... I could find attractive and why I'm a long-term bull on the market. So I think airlines have been beamed down to a pulp. 
mm-hmm. and obviously for good reason. You know, no one wants to fly right now because you're, you're going to catch right. the virus on a plane. But I mean, that that's something long term. Uh, people love travel, uh, and I don't think that's going away. So long term, I, I see that as a, a growing industry. Uh, an industry that can continue to become more and more productive, uh, increasing, uh, I forget the metric, but the utilization of their planes. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, some companies, they have co-branded credit cards. Uh, Delta, for example, makes $4 billion or $5 billion a year on partnering with a, a credit card company because uh, people want to use their miles and get more miles through a, a credit card partnership. And that number could go up to seven or eight billion, and that's very high margin revenue. So you could point to a ton of industries and just say, oh, they have significant growth opportunities that are untapped uh, in the future. And you just have to evaluate that on a case-by-case basis. Uh, but airlines, for example, is something I'm pretty comfortable will come back. Yeah, but do, but the thing about the airlines is if if this thing does get worse, and these planes are parked for eight months or nine months or, God forbid, longer than a year, then you may not be the stock that you might buy today might not be worth. It might have to go. It might have to um, go into bankruptcy, and then your stock goes to zero. So right. I, I think absent the I think absent bailouts. I mean, we obviously got a big one today. This is Friday the twenty seventh. But uh, absent the bailouts, I don't think any imp- airline would survive a 12-month shutter, shuttering of planes. Well, I, I 100%... Yeah, they, uh, well, the government bailout helps them with uh, a, a, quarter, a quarter of the cost basis of a company like Delta. They make $45 billion in revenue. Uh, their cost is $40 million. So roughly $5 billion, uh, $5 billion in profit. Uh Two of which they share with shareholders, so that means three goes to, or no, two billion, which goes back to uh, workers and profit sharing. So that leaves three for the shareholders, and then of that forty, a quarter of that goes to labor, a quarter of that goes to fuel, uh, and then a quarter goes to other operating expenses like paying uh, terminals, paying. Uh, for new aircraft, uh, maintenance on the aircraft parts, and then another quarter, I, I don't know about. <laughs> but, uh, Goes to share buybacks? But the point is, <laughs> like, you, you have a... Qu- <laughs> yeah, that, that's possible. Uh, but a, a quarter of its fuel, which is a variable expense, a quarter right. of its labor... That's yeah, cheap. Which is paid is going to be paid for by the government. They don't want any furloughs or layoffs. <laughs> and then, well, that's just my point. I'm just saying yeah, no, yeah, that of kind of expense. It's no guarantee. The government, the government, wait. The government might wake up and say, "Holy, holy cow! We've just perverted a we've perverted a free market. We've perverted a republic. <laughs> we got to stop." That's not going to happen. <laughs> uh, but I, I 100% agree that airline has airlines have a strong future. Like. How else are people going to travel? We're not. There's no dis- technology that's going to come along and disrupt this industry. But it's not really a question of the industry. I 100% agree the industry has a bright future. 
it's a question of the companies and can they survive? And it's I don't know the answer. I don't know the answer to that. Um, you'd have to look by case by case basis, like you said, and the ones that are going to survive this, you know, yeah, they're probably actually a great buying opportunity right now. Um, but that's something I, you know, I just haven't done the homework on. Um, but it's entirely yeah. possible, in my opinion, that every single airline could go bankrupt. And then it's just going to be new companies that come in and buy the capital. And then the airline, basically industry as we know it, is just a completely new set of players. Uh, that's not, I don't think that's likely, but I'm saying it's not out of the realm of possibility. So do you buy the airplane maker, Bowie? <laughs> <laughs> no, they're going bankrupt. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but, but, but Jeff, that's a good point. I mean, you, you, the question becomes, to, do, we, I think we agree that the demand is there long term. Yeah. But uh, do you, are you comfortable with being, becoming a shareholder in something that has a risk of becoming zero in the next year like are, are they able to withstand those huge losses and come um, out on the other side or if they can't yeah, they mean, can't pay off the debt i uh, think pretty soon i high, i will look into it uh they're unable to pay uh then your shares go to zero right like and i, I think pretty soon i will start looking at them again because i mean i'm i'm comfortable taking risks like i i don't care if like like a few of my bets go to zero. So like just me personally, I think the upside, like the risk reward ratio is probably pretty insane. It's going to be pretty insane pretty soon. Um, but what I don't like is the fact that part of the calculation here is the bailout. Because in my opinion, we don't need that. That's just, again, a wealth transfer out of people's hands to save these companies that you don't necessarily need to save a company because someone will buy that. Like, we're going to fly. Like, we're not just going to give up on this, <laughs> you know? People are going to fly again. So, you know, it's just a matter of who owns it. Um, and I just, I, I, I don't... I don't Here's another thing. Yeah. Oh, sorry. No, you go ahead. Sorry, Jeff, you're cutting it out a little bit. I thought you might have been done. Oh. Um, <laughs> but what I was just going to say is uh, that... Something that hasn't really been talked about. Obviously, so we we talked about <clears throat> the the discount they're trading at is one is makes them attractive. What I mentioned about the um, the possibility of not getting a buy or a bailout by the government is another possibility, which make them go to zero. But uh, <laughs> what people are now talking about, um, which I think is probably more like more along the lines of the right conversation to be having, is what if we don't, you know. I think the highly likelihood, the high likelihood, it'll be in the the bailout structure, because they're talking about making um, they're talking about making unemployment benefits potentially larger than your salary. You know, that's a complete perverse incentive. And uh, if that's the case, then people might start quitting airlines through no fault of the bailout. Well, through the the, the loan fault of the bailout because it made the perverse incentive to to quit working. To quit being a uh, an airline to be a um, a flight path, uh, what are they, what are they call it? They wave the oh, uh, I don't know those <laughs> air traffic controller. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> what if we What if we see a massive exodus of the uh, their of their labor just because the government screwed up the the 
the mechanics of a, of a bailout. You thinking about that? Uh, that's a good point. I mean, we already saw that after the Great Recession, the labor force participation rate going from 69 to, I think, 63 or 64 at its highest a year or two ago. Uh, part of that is due to an aging population with the boomers, uh, the baby boomers, but uh, I think some of it could be attributed to increasingly... Uh, uh, I don't want to say socialist, but increasingly <laughs> policies. You can say socialist. Po- policies I that, think that's uh, fair. Uh, incentivize people to work less. Uh, and a policy like you just mentioned could drive the labor force policy uh, or labor part force participation rate even lower than uh, yeah. the levels we saw before all this. Yeah, and I I'm of the opinion that some of these bailout deals are de facto like national nationalizing the the business cuz essentially there's so many conditions on that bailout money that if the company takes it the government essentially runs that company. Um and that's very disturbing to me. Uh that you know, it seems like I know this is like a big headline. I was, uh, I think Boeing was like, you know, if you're gonna put a a government member on our our uh, board, we're not gonna take your money. And everyone was like, oh fuck you, then go bankrupt then. And I was like, yes, 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 that's the right thing to say. <laughs> you know, like we like, but it seems like the reason they're saying that is like they want the government member on the board. They want them to take the bailout and have the government member on the board. To me, long long term, that's that's a disaster, right? Like, I think if we just did less <laughs> as a government, you know, our long term, you know, we're, we'll be fine. This will be a painful five years, maybe at the most. But you know, just technology is amazing today. Like, we'll we'll come back at strong, and but it's just a matter of. The more and more of this intervention we put on the table, the wor- the more and more we're sacrificing our long term for this sh- short term. And that that's what kind of worries me. Yeah, and I think like a company like Boeing is, uh, I don't know what your guys' perspective is, but it's kind of critically important to this country to be able to manufacture airplanes, uh, e- even for commercial purposes. So... I don't know the right answer if like the government should have a partial ownership, a full ownership, or no ownership. Uh, but it is a company that needs to remain. Whether it goes bankrupt and all shareholders get zero and then gets reincarnated under new investors, uh, whether that's the right answer is a different story. But I do think Boeing in some capacity should exist in this country. We, we shouldn't allow it to fail in weather zero. I mean, what's your concern if America's not manufacturing planes, though? Well, what happens when you go to war? You're going to buy from Europe? Okay. That's, yeah, no, that's a good point. I, that's, I would agree with that. Um, but, How are we going to get, like, hundreds of thousands of troops to, uh, let's say, you want them to get from the U.S. to China and then 
oh, we, we're fighting a second front war in South America. Right. Instead. But I mean, I mean, we do have like defense contractors. I know Boeing's like the biggest one. Um, but like, let's say uh, commercially, we had no business whatsoever. Like, do you do you think it's possible to have basically uh, defense contractors building all the F 18s and then no commercial flights? Or do you, do you see those as kind of a package deal? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I would say, I mean, d- defense spending is no doubt uh, a huge component of what makes up our national deficit and our, our big spending bill. Uh, and I, I think we need to find a way to lower that. Uh, so I, I think we really need to be paying for tech- technology and the capacity to produce these planes. The uh, the, the expertise to be able to improve. So pay the salaries of the R and D department department pay, pay for the ability to produce, but not necessarily produce and incur those variable expenses. Uh, I, I don't know if that's a potential feasible solution, but, uh, we definitely need to be paying for the capability to, uh, produce high tech, uh, military and commercial aircraft. Yeah, that's an interesting point for sure. All right, so I I didn't realize we'd kind of get off. I mean, that's a great conversation. That's great, great stuff. But uh, let's go back to Jeff. Sorry for cutting you off. Let's go back to oil because I did think we should talk about that. We haven't really talked about the oil. Yeah, speaking uh, of uh, state and government, that we've seen. Or sorry, that's the same thing. But state and uh, private business going hand in hand. Oil is the the. I think prime example of this with Saudi Arabia's uh, publicly traded um, state run company is one of the biggest companies in the world uh, for oil. What's your thoughts on Saudi that? Aramco? Yeah, Saudi Aramco. I mean, I've done my research. Do you guys like want to go into the background of what? Uh, what caused this oil war or the, the oil crisis? At least yeah, the oil I, crisis. I mean, I can, the, I can give a quick effect. summary of what's going on in the oil market uh, just because yeah, I work in it. Um, so, I mean, essentially what happened is, uh, so big picture, if we're looking at global oil production, the U.S. Um, is the second biggest producer of oil next to this cartel known as OPEC. And what OPEC, it's basically like Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia. I don't know all the countries that are in it um, off the top of my head, but those are a few examples. Um, They have a cartel in oil production um, and they are the largest producer of oil in the world. U.S. is second. And then uh, I'm not sure the order after that, but uh, Russia is another big producer of oil. And there was a period of time where Russia was aligned with OPEC, at least to a degree, um, and they agreed. And the reason they formed these cartels um, is because essentially if you can, if you have a monopoly on the supply and you control the supply, then you can control the price as well. 
Uh, and this is what De, Beer, De Beers did with um, diamonds, right? So diamonds are actually not that scarce and they're actually not that valuable. Uh, but if since De Beers was able to control the supply, they were able to, you know, just keep that outflow small and the price high and essentially get rent out of that. So it's like you're basically getting free money by manipulating the scarcity. Um, and oil is one of those things where this is actually highly possible because it's so directly tied to land that if an entire you know nation controls the land and the supply, then they can do these sorts of things to manipulate it. Um, but the U.S., we've never... Um, well, not never, but we really don't dabble in this, uh, production manipulation, right? Our government does not touch our oil industry and tell them how much to produce, right? Um, and so what's happening right now is with the fall in demand for oil, since no one's flying and driving and et cetera, et cetera, uh, I think essentially Russia and probably Saudi Arabia to a degree, the headline is that they're they're having a price war with each other, but really I think the U.S. is their main target. Um, I think they saw an opportunity here uh, to basically start producing a ton of oil more than is it, it like they're going to lose money doing this. This is going to cost them money because they're producing at a loss uh, just to keep the price low. Um, and they're doing this to basically bankrupt the U.S. oil industry, because our oil is more expensive to produce than theirs, because it's it's kind of like we have to use fracking, which is more expensive and harder to get the oil. Um, but that's kind of uh, the oil industry in a, in a, I guess, a couple minutes. Let me uh, let me give just a little additional background. To, mm-hmm. uh, I guess what w- what spurred this and all the countries involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so. Uh, Venezuela is a is a socialist country. Mm-hmm. Uh, the U.S. government doesn't like socialism and communism, and Venezuela <laughs> obviously has its no own kidding. Uh, set of problems. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so we we have sanctions on Venezuela, mm-hmm. uh, and the Russian government didn't really respect those sanctions, and through. Uh, one of its state-owned oil enterprises, they uh, Rosneft, they were buying Venezuelan oil and pretty much serving as the middleman for Venezuelan oil. So the U.S. didn't like that and then uh, didn't back uh, a pipeline from Rosneft going into Europe. And... or. It's either that or some other sanction against Rosneft. I might have my facts wrong. Uh, <laughs> hopefully, there's no fact checker listening to this. We don't. We don't <laughs> do that here. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> because of the U.S. Uh, backlash against Rosneft, uh, Putin was pretty upset with the U.S. and uh, when. The demand fell and OPEC Plus had to meet again to discuss uh, potential further production cuts. Yeah, so uh, when they went to discuss the the potential increased production cuts uh, due to coronavirus, the the Russians 
didn't want to do it. Uh, and this was primarily a result of uh, the U.S. hurting one of its com- companies, Rosneft. Uh, mm-hmm. And as a result, we saw, uh, because uh, the Russians knew if they didn't support the production cut, that uh, no one would agree to the production cut, and therefore there'd just be a free flow of oil into the market, as we're seeing today, and the lower price of oil would really hurt the U.S. shale industry. So right. the Russians were thinking two or three moves ahead, uh, but uh, that's kind of why we're in this predicament. So all of the countries were acting c- kind of logically, like, the U.S. obviously wants to uh, hurt the Venezuelan regime, uh, has, but that impacted its relationship with Russia, which Russia now impacted the relationship with Saudi Arabia, and now it's going to hurt all of the oil industry. Right, and, and to make it even more clear is the percentage of GDP for Russia and OPEC nations uh, that's representative by oil is much, much, much higher than the U.S. So it's a lot more understandable for them to really take these kind of oil sanctions very personally because it it's basically like crippling their entire economy uh, because they represent like a majority of their productive uh, capability. Um, and so... Russia for a while now has, like you said, been angry with the United States uh, and their our oil industry, and so I think they just saw this as a as an opportunity. And then Saudi, you know, is just mad at Russia for not going along with the cuts, so they're saying they're going to try to bankrupt them. But the I think the reality is the most people would argue that Russia is going to come out the winner in the long run of this, um, uh, I guess, oil slump um, because they have the uh, most, um, they're the, they were the most prepared for it, I guess you could say. Yeah, the, the Russians were, I mean, the, the Russia, all, all these significant oil producing states with oil, uh, with government-owned oil companies, they, mm-hmm. they they set their budgets thinking about what's my future price of oil. Right. Uh, so Russia said, all right, I'm going to be pretty conservative in my estimate. I think right. they assumed like $45 a barrel, which was lower than what was trading at the beginning of this year, late yeah, last year. Yeah, that was pretty so low was, at the time. Right. Uh, and now it's at, I haven't checked WTI or Brent, but I think it's in the it's mid- like twenty five. Yeah, it's like twenty five. <laughs> so I think it's lower. I think it's twenty three. Yeah, yeah, that's so crazy. They're gonna Russia, Saudi Arabia. They're gonna run huge uh, budget deficits. But Russia's argument is, I could last five to ten years on this massive budget deficit because I have a sovereign wealth fund I could tap into. Right, uh, worth Whereas- one hundred forty five billion. Right, whereas Saudi Arabia has been paying dividends and all that stuff, so like they don't have as much cash to rely on. Um, but the the U.S. again for context, our, our shale industry 
can't really remain profitable below $40 oil. And we're at like $23. So yeah, this is pretty much I, game over for a lot of these companies. Yeah, I think the Permian is, that's like our, our best oil producing region. And mm-hmm. their break even might be 30 bucks, And that's after years of productivity gains. Right. Uh, and I mean, perhaps they could do better, uh, but that remains to be seen. And uh, yeah, so this is definitely a, a pretty big blow to the U.S. oil industry. Yeah. And for, I mean, for, for most people, they're probably thinking, what's the big deal? Um, cheap oil is good, right? It makes everything less expensive. And they're right. That is a positive side of this in the fact that so much oil is being produced right now that, yeah, gasoline prices are going to go down. Other things, like a lot of prices should theoretically come down as a result. Um, but, but no one's driving anyway. <laughs> what? But no one's driving anyway. Yeah, that's true. No one's driving. That's the thing is, and so... I work in an oil storage, the oil storage business. So since no one's using the oil, essentially everyone's just trying to store it right now. Um, and we've never run out of storage before, but like this is pretty unprecedented. Uh, people might start having to build more storage to store the stuff. And I've seen some crazy estimates. This is makes no sense, but so I've seen some analysts go, oh, oil's going to go negative. But that's, that's so stupid because... They're going to just burn the oil as it comes out of the ground before they pay you to take it. Like, that's asinine. So, like, <laughs> you know, that's that's just a failure of people, like, understanding reality. Uh, they're just, like, extending their models past where they, they, they sh- you know, should go. But that's how crazy this market is right now. That, like, you know, you know I, maybe it could be the case that they're pulling out of the ground and they don't even have anywhere to put it, so they just have to burn it. That's like, that's not unheard of. Um, I did see a tweet today that said a, there was a trade for negative 19 cents a barrel. I have to, like Roger said, there's no fact here, <laughs> so I don't know. I, I didn't really look into it, but I think it was like the, the what, what is it, like the Northwestern Can- Canada oil well, production. Yeah. I think... It's like really, really cheap already. So it, it could theoretically go negative, but not... Not in the way that people think. It, it the way it would come out to be negative is essentially you're saying, uh, along the along the like supply line along the supply right, chain. like just because the storage costs, right? The storage costs would be positive, so it's like you're essentially paying. Yeah, you're you're like, okay, I'll pay you to take this oil if you pay me even more to store it. So like. It, it would be mixed in with a storage deal. Like the producer of it isn't going to just give it to yeah. you unless they are getting paid for the storage of it. Like it, it, it's, it's not as simple as just like, oh, I'll pay you to take this oil. Yeah, but about like Canadian oil, and I, I've just found the oil market really fascinating, so I just keep researching it. Like Canadian oil is, is very heavy uh so it's like the oil sands of western canada so that's it's pretty low quality it has to be it's very heavy it doesn't uh, flow through pipelines well you have to refine it 
a lot more. So because it needs this extra processing, it's a lot cheaper. Uh, so that's kind of the complexity. So they, they, they sell to U.S. refiners at a way lower price than the Wex Texas index. So uh, that could be why we see this anomaly in Western Canada where the, the price could, could go negative at some point in the supply chain. But th right. they also but that's not showing up in the gas. T that's not showing up at the gas. No. Right, yeah. right. Negative. <laughs> the, like the refiner is obviously selling for a profit. But uh, right. I was reading about Canadian oil. Like they uh, to shut down one of their uh, production sites would be enormously costly because the the cost of starting it back up uh, is, is tremendous. Because uh, yeah, you have to like uh, the the production site is like heated uh, in order to allow the oil to flow better, and uh, if you were to shut down production, it would, it would cool back up, uh, cool cool down again, and that that would certainly hurt the flow rates and uh, the the production of West Canadian oil. So I could see them. Uh, trying to decrease the price they sell at in order to avoid a full shutdown. Yeah, right. And That's a good point. So one of the reasons I say I, I think this could be negatively negatively impacting the average person is one the ripple effects of shale going bankrupt um, because there's a lot of debt that was essentially used to create the shale industry, and whenever debt goes bad. That's it's never isolated. As we saw in two thousand eight, uh, the how the subprime lending crisis wasn't isolated as people thought it was. It, it had ripple effects into the entire economy, and the reason for that is because um, it's whenever credit dries up, it's deflationary. It's basically just like a a short uh, instant reduction in the money supply, um, and there's a lot of debt out there right now that's financing the the shale industry, and so. If a lot of it goes bad, uh, that could be pretty damaging. And then on top of that, if we see our oil industry go bankrupt for a period of time, uh, as soon as demand comes back, there's going to be a lag before we can able we're able to meet those production requirements, and that could be a huge snap up in the oil prices when that happens, and that could cause a lot of you know. Uh, damage as well. So I want you to to um, put on your again. This is this is just chit chat. It's not investment advice, obviously. Um, well, first I want each of you. So the reason us. I'm asking you, I don't really follow the oil as the follow oil prices as much as you two, obviously for reasons you stated. Um, so can you guys say? A lot of people have thought that oil was going to go down, but for other reasons, before this all happened, they thought that we're going to be moving to kind of uh, secondary, secondary sources of energy or renewable sources. Um, so maybe comment on that and then also comment on um, your kind of process for, or like your, I guess, experience following this market. Uh, were you ex anticipating, expecting oil coming under 30 or were you just as surprised as everyone on that Monday when it opened up at like 32 uh, after like a 20% drop 
and uh, can it go lower? So, Rogo, you go first. Uh, the price of anything could always go lower. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, so, I'm never surprised on a commodity beast good going as low as it could go or as high as it could go. Uh, so, uh, th- there is room to move lower. There always is. And there's obviously room to go through the roof as well. Uh, but in terms of the oil industry and where it's head- headed, headed uh, I mean, you have 100 million gallons of oil that is, or, or 100 million barrels of oil that's consumed a day. And the, the decline of that is going to be uh, very slow over time. I think 65 to 70% of that is used on transport. Uh, and specifically on uh, uh, on passenger vehicles, I think that number is close to 50 to 55%. So the primary electrification of of uh, of passenger vehicles. The oh, the passenger vehicles. Sorry. Yeah, that that's uh, that's going to ramp very very slowly, but. That that's your addressable market, like roughly fifty to fifty five percent of of the oil market. Uh, so I think the decline is going to be pretty slow, but it'll certainly happen. Well, you you kind of sound like you're not accounting for this obviously exogenous coronavirus effect. Are you saying after it ramps back up, or are you? Oh, you're just yeah. I mean, yeah, after it ramps back up, I, I'm thinking long term. Uh, yeah. But I figured you were. Yeah, long term, like oil should be fine. You you, you pick a a company with stable cash flows, and those should continue for twenty, thirty years. I mean, it's just going to be a declining industry in ten, twenty years. Uh, but if you have stable cash flows for thirty, forty years, I mean, it's a good investment. Uh, but uh, in the near term. I mean, you're just rolling the dice. Uh, the, corona, <laughs> the coronavirus could have a second wave, a third wave. You really, uh, you really don't know it. At least at the, at the, at all levels of the, uh, the, the, the oil life. supply chain. Yeah, I, I don't think we'll see like a significant decline of oil, even in our lifetime. If I, if I'm being honest, um, I know a lot of people think like renewables are ready to replace oil, but I don't think they're there yet. I don't think the technology is there in terms of meeting our energy demands and being a, you know, reasonably priced substitute. Um, I think a lot of the renewables are only there because of subsidies and um, um, novelty, I guess you could say. Like, um, and so the reality is if you're subsidizing the renewables, you know, you're getting that, that value from other industries. And what do those under industries rely on? Oil. So <laughs> like we're not going to see renewables replace uh, the oil industry, in my opinion, in our lifetime. Uh, yeah, I think that, uh, yeah, 
Jeff, I, I think like the first thing that could go is perhaps we replace uh, renewables uh, with wind and solar, or we replace oil, coal, uh, natural gas with solar and uh, wind renewables uh, for our power grid. But that's two percent of oil demand. Right. It's it's really a small component. Uh, th- then the next lever you pull is uh, passenger vehicles, but that that's going to take a very long time to ramp up. And then you think about transport of a airplane or uh, a cargo ship, lugging mm-hmm. tens of thousands of pounds. If you tried to put a electric uh, loader on that the, the thing would sink yeah. <laughs> like the, the plane would fall on your head so, so we're, we're just not there yet and yeah uh so oil is safe for 10 20 years and then we could have this conversation again 10 20 years right it, it, it's just not there yet to start predicting imminent decline of oil so that's really yeah. why it's, it's important to have a domestic industry uh, focus on that. Yeah, you saying that is interesting because this is this is an idea that I wrestled around with. Because uh, I mean, as people are probably aware at this point, is I'm I'm pretty much almost always in favor of market solutions to things. Uh, but sometimes the market solution could be that if the whole world is producing oil cheaper than we are, we won't produce any of it here. Uh, you know that's completely possible scenario under a market solution. Um, but I think there is a sort of a, a negative externality here in the sense that if we don't have any of our own production and the whole rest of the world decides to cut us off, you know, we're, we're screwed. Um, and so I think there is actually some validity uh, to, I guess, protection and protectionism as a kind of um, insurance against, I guess, the rest of the world cutting us off from supply, you know, political instability, I guess you could say. Uh, And so the fact, and you can see the effects of this already, right? So I think a lot of people would argue um, many of our wars in recent history have been about oil Um, and as we became a net export, we were briefly like a net exporter of oil, but like we basically, as we got towards that trajectory, it put less and less incentive for us to try to run the rest of the world. And I mean, we still do it, but I'm saying it gives us like an out to be like, okay, we don't, we don't need to be in all these countries. This political stability doesn't matter there. Because, you know, we don't need to import oil from them. So it, it frees you up from basically being the world's police if you have your own access to oil. So I, I, I would agree with you, Rogo, there that I think there is some value in having domestic oil production. It sounds like um, it sounds kind of like it's interesting that point you made it it was tough because some of that was choppy to me i don't know about you rogo <laughs> if you heard all that from jeff or 
I kind of got the gist, and yeah. it sounds like an important point to think about is the optionality of having oil production. Um, similarly, the uh, conversation we had earlier about plane production, oh, yeah. there's an optionality where if you're not producing those things and you go to war and then you get embargoed from your oil supply or from your plane supply, it's like you're dead in the water. Um, so that's a, that's a good point to think about. I don't think it's... Well, at that point, I mean, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but there's really no option other than the government stepping in and, and having some sort of subsidy or bailout. I would say that's a valid use case up. of tariffs, in my opinion. I think yeah. I think oil. I mean, I, I think the case to have like to bail out Boeing to is if it ever came to that, and I think it already has. But you you need a domestic aircraft manufacturer for for, for war purposes, like because that's not a commodity. That that's not a. Uh, a simple item <laughs> like it's taken China tens yeah. of years to even figure out how to build a commercial aircraft mm-hmm. in Comac and they're not even close mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so if we were ever at war we, 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 and we don't have that capability no no chance of being able to win that war so like right. the Europe's fine the US is fine and, and China realizes that's a whole like they, they can't keep coming back to us uh, for help there, so they'll have to figure it out, and they're, they're smartly doing that. Uh, and but the oil, I think Jeff, you could correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, we, we could figure out how to start producing again within a year or two if, if we ever uh, were in a uh, defense mode or yeah, we really needed it. I would say certainly. Unless that land gets somehow repurposed, I would, I would place that as unlikely. But basically, the wells and everything gets set up, and that's just a matter of turning it off and on, uh, which is pretty simple to do. Um, and so, you know, like you said, we could come back pretty quickly. But that's assuming it's not shut down. Like if it was shut down for maybe twenty years. Uh, and then like that land and capital equipment and everything gets repurposed. Suddenly, I don't think it's very simple anymore. Um, but yeah, if, if we're talking about like a coronavirus bankruptcy or shutdown, yeah, I think we can come back. If, if oil goes back up in price, I think we can turn it right back on. No problem. Yeah, I think the energy independence is a, a nice to have. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas like... <laughs> the ability to build commercial aircraft is like a must have if I was to yep. put into buckets. Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. And I think more and more we do, we do start to have to consider kind of this, like, I guess, global instability. Like it, to me, this, this is the role of government, right? Like this is what it's here for. The problem I see right now is it's doing basically everything else like full throttle. Well, what do you guys say? Um, we're running uh, about an hour and 20 minutes. What do you guys say about some final thoughts before closing it up? Uh, 
Yeah, so I would say the government needs to do less uh, messing around <laughs> with the economy, trying to get it, trying to bail everyone out, trying to do everything out. It should focus its attention when it comes to, I, I think the only time it's valid in these things is, is the, the examples we talked about. Or, and, I don't, and I'm not saying it is valid. I'm saying the only time it's potentially valid is the U cases we talked about in terms of things like energy independence, maybe food independence, uh, like you said, technology independence, like these, these sorts of things that are relevant to like conflict. Because that's, that's what the government, in my opinion, is here for, is conflict. It's, it's supposed to protect us from conflict and solve conflicts abroad if the need arises. Hopefully, we do less of that as well. Um, but I think, I think we're get, our government's doing way too much in everything else, and it's, it's going to lose sight of what, it, what it's there for in the first place. All right, Rogo? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I would just say, like, in these hard times of the coronavirus, we have better days ahead. I mean, we, we saw our economy ticking along for 10-plus years, maybe on the, on the backs of some errant policies from the Federal Reserve and our federal government, but... Uh, you just have to remain upbeat and be uh, continue to have a positive outlook on this country, on, on the world economy, and uh, even if I mean, God forbid you, you you lost your job or at a threat of losing your job, like I mean, the, this demand crisis we have as a result of the coronavirus isn't here to stay. Uh, we're gonna beat it and. Uh, we're gonna come back, come out better on the other side. Enjoy the positivity. I like the positivity. While it lasts, well, um, you won't hear much really more of that. On this I will. Podcast. I'm gonna. So what I'm gonna say is a negative, <laughs> and then I'll follow it with a positive, and then uh, we love negativity. <laughs> to just kind of, just to follow that. I I will say. I, d I do agree with you, Rogo. I do think that there can be a positive on the other side. I think, though, I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. So um, if people think that you're starting to get used to the new lifestyle or get used to the new, or, or you're thinking it's just going to be transitory and go right back to the way you used to live, I think we still have yet to see all sorts of things shaken up. So I, I am positive like you, Rogo. I do think that there could be... Um, uh, something good on the other side, but I do think that it's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, so that was kind of my negative. My positive is I'm thankful that we can, in these trying times, in these uncertain times, uh, I think that I have access to some uh, really great resources in YouTube and also uh, a lot of the thinkers that I follow online. I think it's really interesting to to add a commentary to these events and it's kind of keeping me sane to hear that it's not everyone just drinking the government Kool-Aid where uh, I don't think the government has all the answers and I don't think everyone thinks they do. So that's a positive in my mind. Um, but just to, to finish off, I want to thank our special guest, Rogo. Uh, you've been awesome. This, this went really well, in my opinion. Um, and we'll definitely have you back. I, I think I speak for Jeff and myself uh, that you are welcome to come back and and talk some more on, on the Do Less podcast. 
yeah, I, I felt like we went, we did a little more on this podcast considering <laughs> the runtime. But uh, you know, I, I love doing less with you guys, so I, I'd be glad to be back. Awesome.